Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent, Martin Arnold, our banking editor, and also Tom Hale, who's our capital markets correspondent. This week, we'll be discussing two unsolicited bids for WorldPay, the payments organisation. Secondly, a battle from the bondholders of Banco Popular in Spain. And finally, a look at the outcome of the stress tests in the US with our guest there, Chris Kotowski from Oppenheimer. First, though, to that story breaking on Monday about WorldPay. And Emma, you've been looking at this. This is the organisation as a kind of big payments processor that once belonged to RBS, didn't it? And now it's the subject of a couple of rival unsolicited bids. Yes, that's right. So it's the largest payments processor in the UK. And it revealed on Tuesday morning that it has received two separate bids from US banking giant JP Morgan and Vantiv, which is a US card company. This news sent shares in WorldPay soaring as much as 26% early morning on Tuesday. Now, speaking to people that are involved in the takeover approach, it sounds like the logic from JP Morgan's perspective is to uh, build on its existing payments processing business, which is arguably overshadowed by the rest of its core banking operations. And this comes at a time when WorldPay and other payments processors are really thriving as more people globally shift from cash payments into digital and contactless payments. And just to shed light on what WorldPay actually does. The payments processor enables businesses such as retailers to accept online and card payments from their customers. So when you go into a shop, for example, they'll provide the the machine that allows customers to pay with their card. Or if you buy a product online, they will provide the technology that backs that transaction. And you said that they're the biggest in the UK. As their name suggests, are they a worldwide company? Indeed, they've recently expanded globally. Their strength lies in the UK. As you say, it's the biggest payments processor here. They also have operations in Canada, India, Brazil, through various tie-ups with local companies. It also has a US business, which hasn't performed as well as its UK division. So there may be synergies there if they do strike a tie-up with the two respective US companies, insofar as it will boost WorldPay's presence in the US. Now, I said that this business was once owned by RBS. It then sold the business at the time of its big problems post-2008. What's happened to it since? You you mentioned that it's listed on the stock market now. The company was actually founded in the 1990s by an entrepreneur called Nick Ogden, who has since gone on to found a clearing bank in the UK called ClearBank. It was subsequently sold to Royal Bank of Scotland, as you say, where it sat largely as a back office function. Following £45.5 billion state bailout that RBS received, the bank decided to offload WorldPay as a condition of EU rules for receiving its government bailouts. This was sold 
sold to private equity firms Bain and Advent, uh, about 80% of it offloaded to them in 2010 and the remaining 20% in 2013. And then following that, Bain and Advent, they grew the company by boosting the number of employees from about 2,000 to 4,500, invested about £1 billion and really brought the company along before listing it on the London Stock Exchange in late 2015, giving it a market cap of about £5 billion, which represented the largest IPO in about two years at the time, following the flotation of Royal Mail in 2013. Very good. Well, we'll uh, follow the story and see who, if anybody, wins the battle to buy it. Let's move on now to our second story, and that's a look at Banco Popular, which regular listeners will remember has been in trouble for some time. They were effectively bailed out by Santander a few weeks ago. But a battle is ongoing with bondholders of Banco Popular. Over their treatment, junior bondholders were wiped out as part of this transaction. So let me bring in Tom Hale, our capital markets correspondent. Tom, what exactly are these bondholders complaining about? Basically, the holders in some of the subordinated bonds in Banco Popular have between them, first of all, they've hired lawyers. And I understand they're planning to bring a case by around early August. It really revolves around unanswered questions surrounding, I think, three key areas. One of these is the bank failed because of effectively a run on the bank. And there are question marks about why, you know, Greek, Italian banks that have had emergency central bank funding for a very long period of time have been able to survive, while Banco Popular, which is a kind of bigger, and in some respects arguably was a better bank, only lasted two days. It burned through 3.6 billion emergency funding in just two days. And there's some suggestion the central banks, the ECB, should have done a better job propping up the, the liquidity of Banco Popular rather than throwing it to the wolves. Exactly. There are specific questions around the the so-called collateral haircuts. When banks apply for this special funding, they post their assets with the central bank and the, the central bank applies a haircut. The more severe the haircut, the less funding they get. Now, apparently, you know, the rumour in the market is that there were very severe haircuts on Banco Popular's collateral, which would explain why it burnt through its deposit, its liquidity so quickly. Um, but the other question is really who was withdrawing their money from the bank. And that's the kind of liquidity question. The other questions are about other people offering to help recapitalise the bank. Apparently, these offers were ignored. And thirdly, the valuation of the bank. So the FROB, the Spanish Resolution Authority, which is, of course, active in the aftermath of the country's crisis, hired an independent analyst to value the bank. And it came, its valuation came to minus 2 billion, which is almost exactly equal to the amount of subordinated bonds the bank had. So the question bondholders are asking is, isn't it a bit of a coincidence? And of course it could be, but we don't know. The valuation of the bank is exactly equal to the subordinated bondholders. The backstory to this, of course, is that under European rules that have been drafted in the wake of the financial crisis, bondholders now, especially junior bondholders, are very much at risk when a bank fails. Their investments are wiped out to cover the shortfall of capital in a bank. Of course, there's been more of a row since, and I suspect this has stoked the row with bondholders in Popular, that a different treatment was applied when a couple of banks were on the brink in Italy, Vicenza and Veneto Bank, which we talked about in last week's podcast. Is that in any way part of the bondholders' complaint in the Banco Popular case? Because I suspect they may well be investors in the Italian bonds as well. I think the two are kind of indirectly linked. In the case of Italy, obviously, the Italians drew heavily on taxpayer support to address the, the two regional Venetian banks that failed and, and were bought by Intesa. I think, you know, really what people are drawing attention to is the presence of retail investors in Italy of course, in Banco Popular, there were retail investors in the shares and a small amount 
in the bonds, but mostly these were professional, you know, asset managers based in London, international players. And it's it's become quite clear that in the case of Italy, the presence of retail investors in the bank's senior bonds, that was really seen as political dynamite by the Italian government. And and that ultimately led to a completely different resolution process, a completely different deal for both the, the takeover bank and for the taxpayers in the country. And I think, you know, investors are starting to reassess how they view banks across the continent based on the presence of retail investors. So they're kind of linked through, through that. It's a safer bet if you've got retail there as a Exactly. Yeah. Well, let me just bring Martin in here. I suppose the big question, Martin, is, and we haven't really been here before, are the bondholders in this landmark case going to win? It's obviously hard to say, but I, I would be sceptical about their prospects because although the Tier 2 bonds are governed by UK law, and therefore any case would be heard in UK courts, not Spanish ones, so that does give them a bit of a benefit. I have to say that having listened to several of the bondholders who've hired Quinn Emmanuel and who part of this this group, they have a lot of conspiracy theories. They have a lot of supposition, a lot of circumstantial evidence. But what they don't have is motive. And, and I find it hard to understand why would there be a conspiracy of the finance minister in Spain the European Central Bank, the Single Resolution Board in Brussels, and the chief executive and senior management of Banco Popular to basically bring down this bank and hand it to Santander on a plate. I I just don't see why there would be that kind of conspiracy if there was. It it doesn't make sense, really, for them to... It's not in their interests to do that. Now, they talk about the Spanish finance minister wanting to get a job in Brussels. They talk about the new EU failed bank regulator wanting to prove, show its teeth. They talk about the incompetence of the Banco Popular management, but none of that is proof that there was, you know, wrongdoing here. Well, we'll watch this case, because as I say, it is a landmark case, and we'll watch it very closely. Well, let's move on to our third topic, and let's go over also to New York, where Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, has been in conversation with Chris Kotovsky of Oppenheimer, And they've been talking about the so-called CCAR tests. This is the stress test results that came through a few days ago from the US banks and have basically allowed the banks to pay a huge windfall of payments in terms of dividends and uh, share buybacks as they return capital to their shareholders after a clean bill of health in stress tests. Chris, thanks so much for joining me. The big news of the past week or so is that every single bank uh, that took the stress test this year has been cleared. Now, of course, there was a partial fail for Capital One, but it's got six months to improve. But the big picture is that uh, the Fed has pronounced every single bank that took the test sufficiently well capitalised. So, so what does this mean for the banking system? I think the banking system has radically de-risked its balance sheets. And the big banks, the the universal banks, they've been building their capital bases even after they came well above the theoretical minimums. They've been building them right up through the first quarter of this year. And now I think it means the Fed is comfortable enough that they can allow the banks to right-size their capital stack. So what does right-sizing mean? That implies that they're wrong now. Certainly companies like Citibank with a 12.8% CET1 ratio, Mm -hmm. I think is overcapitalized. And the reason why it's a problem is that if you are running a bank with a 12.8% capital ratio, 
your returns are going to be lower than a bank that looks exactly like you in every other way that's got an 11% capital ratio. And in the long run, it creates an uneven playing field. And I think importantly also for the investors who invested to recapitalize Citi on the heels of the last financial crisis, if you never allow them to earn a reasonable return on the investment that they made, the next time there's a financial crisis, nobody's going to invest in financial institutions. Okay. And you were saying before that um, most of the investors in Citi these days are, in fact, these guys that came post-crisis, that they have nothing to do with the legacy of Citi. Well, yeah, I like to say Citi diluted its shareholder base 10 for 1. The shareholders who own the stock now are not the ones who benefited from the largesse of the government. They are the ones who put up their hard-earned money mm-hmm. in order so that the government could get paid back its TARP money. Okay. And if you never allow those people to earn a decent return, see how we do in the next financial crisis. So uh, what is a decent return for a big bank? What has been an acceptable return in the past? I'm looking at uh, data from uh, Professor Damarodin in from NYU who's mm-hmm. got data on over 7,000 companies. And in general, what his data shows is that the market earns a 12 to 14 percent, and the banks have historically been in that same range. And it makes sense if you think about it. The banks, as best I can tell, account for about 12 to 15 percent of the capital that's used in the economy. And of course, in the long run, that pool of capital needs to be managed in order to return the same the rest of the economy does. Mm-hmm. Now, is it the obsession with capital that we've seen over the past what, seven or eight years since a CCAR, the stress test, was born? Is that now beginning to, to change? I would hope so, because capital is not a silver bullet for managing banks well or for resolving a crisis. And the Fed has this thing that they call the CAMEL score, yeah. and it stands for Capital Asset Quality Management Liquidity and sensitivity to securities risk. And that's, I think, a pretty reasonable and thoughtful list of all the things that make for a sound bank. And the problem with it is the capital, the C, is -hmm. the part that's the easiest to quantify because you can boil it down to a single ratio and you can just try to push it up, up, up. But if you reflect back to the crisis in 2006, Wachovia had higher capital ratios than J.P. Morgan. National City had higher capital ratios than U.S. Bank. Remind us what happened to National City. They nearly failed and were sold to uh, PNC. And Wachovia uh, was swallowed up by Wells Fargo. Yeah. Okay, so capital and isn't the be-all and end-all. The capital isn't the be-all and end-all. It's clearly important. But the thing is, even in the heart of the crisis... J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo were able to raise capital because they had the other things. They had good asset quality, they had good management, they had good liquidity, and they weren't uh, sensitive to securities risk. Mm -hmm. Whereas Citibank and Countrywide, they didn't have those things, and so they couldn't raise capital. In the long run, if all you do ever is push capital up, the banks have to respond by raising prices, tightening credit, and spending less money on delivery. So you're going to shrink uh, the bank's sphere of operations if all you ever do is push up capital. So by pushing down capital, of course, it's good news for for shareholders, for equity investors. What about consumers? By by that logic, then, um, if they've been tougher on pricing, are are the banks now about to relax conditions for consumers? At the margin, yes. Right After the financial crisis, we roughly doubled the capital requirements for the banking system. And for the big four, we more than doubled them. So yes, you know, what you have to do is you have to raise prices, cut access, and, and that makes the pool of clients that you're serving 
smaller but more profitable. Mm-hmm. And you know, this is going to be a very marginal tweak. I don't think anybody is talking about radically bringing down the capital. Like Citibank, for mm-hmm. example, talks about bringing its capital from 12.8 down to 11 or 11 and a half. And uh, that doesn't sound like a huge move, but A, just the fact that it's not going up every single quarter is Mm -hmm. a help. And B, at 11 and a half, you'd be a lot closer, say, to the average regional bank that's like 10, 10 and a half, something like that. Whereas at near 13, you really have to start pricing your products differently than most of the competitors. Well, just to draw this all together, is it now a changed environment for the banks? Lots of these banks are being run by the same people who endured a pretty severe crisis and a pretty harsh uh, aftermath. How do things change from here? I think the banking industry is, for the next 10 or 20 years, psychically different, regardless of what happens with the regulation. I think in response to the stress test, they have spent the last seven or eight years de-risking their loan portfolios. You're done with the low FICO score bars. You're done with high loan-to-value loans. You've gone through this painful period of adjustment. You've narrowed your product line to kind of just the higher quality borrowers. You've dealt with the uh, you know expense assumptions and all that. I don't think anyone's going to go back the other way. And the other thing I think that has really changed the banks forever is the mass of litigation and fines that came on. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the banks were still paying fines, writing billions of dollars of checks every quarter in 2014. Bank of America, J.P. Morgan. For sins that were often committed by a different management team more than a decade earlier. And even if you were to have a Trump administration that says it's back to the Wild West, people are going to have a long memory uh, about this. And the other example of that is the so-called operational risk-weighted assets, okay, yeah. where you know J.P. Morgan has $400 billion, Bank of America has $500 billion, and it was just the Fed's way of saying, well, you have to have an extra 40 or $50 billion of capital because you did these things back in the crisis that we didn't like. Again, I think even if you get assurances from the current administration, All the bank managements know that there's going to be a different administration there 10 or 15 years from now, and they might have a very different view of it. So are are the big losers from from, uh, last week, are are they the non-banks that have benefited from the, uh, the risk aversion of the past few years? That remains to be seen. Again, I don't think the banks are going to go out and quickly ramp up their risk appetite. And to the extent that anyone has rapidly expanded in subprime loans, uh, you you see some of the uh, Mm non-bank companies, a a lot of them have had their share of issues with that. And again, I think generally it's not going to be that big a problem, but I don't think there are going to be any big tectonic shifts in the uh, landscape here as a result of last week. Okay. Well, my thanks to Ben uh, McClanahan and Chris Kotowski from Oppenheim. All that's left for me to do is to thank Emma, Martin and Tom here in the studio, Ben in New York with his guest Chris Kotowski, and also thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Jodsna Singh. Until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.